Let's start in a prayer. Heavenly Father, help us now to focus on you, to focus on your presence here with us. Thank you that as we come here to meet with you, you come here to meet with us. And we ask that you will help us leave any baggage at the door so that our focus can be on you. And Lord, would you speak to each and every one of us. May that be through words of challenge, where we need to be challenged, or through soothing words, where we need comfort. Father, be here with us and speak to each and every one of us so that we leave this place with a closer understanding of you and a greater willingness to proclaim a love for the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Right, so yeah, thanks Paul. Four verses to focus on this morning. Um, I guess sometimes there's a, there's a risk that you go uh, uh, one of two ways. You either say, let's look at this whole chapter of the Bible in one morning and then you rush through it and there's loads of stuff that you might have to discard and, and just choose one or two areas to focus on. And then you go to the other end of the, end of the scale where you've got four verses and there's, there is potentially a risk where you say, I've got to get 20 minutes out of that. I've got to get half an hour, two hours maybe, you know, at a push out of that. I'll try and keep to the two hours. I won't get beyond that. And of course then there's a risk that you start to put into the text what isn't already there rather than trying to get out of the text. So we've got four verses today, but I am confident that we've got plenty, plenty here to chew over. So we see Jesus at the home of Martha and Mary. And it's the same Martha and Mary that we will be familiar with, possibly through the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was Martha and Mary's brother. Um, and we probably met Mary last week as well. So there is the, 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 there's not um, totally unanimous that through the different Gospels it is the same Mary that we see uh, anointing the feet of Jesus and then the same Mary that we see with, with Martha a little bit later. Uh, John says that it is the same Mary in John 11, according to him. Some scholars think, not so sure, and others believe that they, they conclude that it is the, is the same Mary. So it's likely, but it's not necessarily certain. So we saw Mary last week anointing the feet of Jesus and, calling a bit, and, and causing a bit of controversy, and then she's at it again today, this time with her sister, Martha. Martha and Mary were busy because some people say it's because Jesus was there and you'd be busy if the Messiah was coming around for lunch. That could be the case, that she, they were going to particular effort because it was Jesus who was there with his disciples. Um, did they know Jesus to be a messianic rabbi? Did they think Jesus was a good teacher and a close friend? Did they know Jesus' reputation that was growing as a bit of a troublemaker? We're not quite sure how they saw Jesus in that time. And also, let's remember that if Jesus was there with his disciples, and that's highly likely, even if Lazarus wasn't around at the time, because he's not mentioned in the text, she was preparing a meal for 15 people. So it's easy to think that this was a special occasion and that Martha was, was busying herself because this was, uh, this was something that was worth getting right. But there is a good chance that this was another meal for her, another preparation, another 
kind of routine bit of hospitality for her. So we have to be careful that we don't assume this to be a one-off situation for Martha. When Ali heard that <clears throat> I was preaching on this, she said, I've heard this one preached on a lot. It's usually at women's conferences and women's events, I think because it's Martha and Mary who are in it. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of emphasis on the fact that Jesus was, was talking to and um, being welcomed by female figures, which has, does have significance. And what Ali said was that over and over again, it tends to be the same message that is preached with this, that it's the focus is on the women, and, and the conclusion is either a question that is posed, are you Martha, or are you Mary, or i.e., are you someone who is practical, or someone who is spiritual? Is all your focus on the doing, is all, all your focus on the being? Are you a doer or a beer? And I'm not sure that that is what I would safely take out of this text, that it says we're either one or the other. I think there's usually a good chance that we are sometimes one and sometimes the other, very often somewhere in between. And so what I don't want to do this morning is for us to think we have to pigeon ourselves and and recognize us as Martha or as Mary and then respond accordingly. And also there's a risk that we look at this text solely as... Uh, a a representation of who we are and we lose the sight that fundamentally we have to find Jesus in this that the Bible is not about us, it's about Jesus so the Greek suggests that Martha carried on and on until she was distracted so in verse 40 it says but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made the interpretation of the Greek suggests that Mary did actually help out and then she went to sit at Jesus' feet. So it wasn't necessarily as if Martha was doing all the work and Mary did absolutely nothing, that Martha carried on and on and on, distracted by all the work that needed to be done. But Mary got to the point where she felt she could draw a line under the the, the work that needed to be done and then to sit at Jesus' feet. Martha had allowed attention to, to wander. So she tried to listen, but she couldn't do that and prepare a meal as well and she chose the preparation of the meal it's easier to be distracted sometimes than it is to face the situation as I'm getting older I'm starting to get a little bit wiser and I discovered I mean you may have noticed that probably about 10 years ago I think it was the year we had children renovated our house and I started a business I uh, granted permission for my hair to go on a long term sabbatical (laughs) and like many people who've gone on a sabbatical, it decided it didn't want to come back. <laughs> and there's nothing I can do about that. So I thought, well, I know, let's, I'll grow a scrappy, patchy beard to see if that distracts people's attention away from the bald patch. And, and there's also uh, another way that I've been trying to see if this technique works is I'm not very good at losing weight, and I do have a bit of a spare tyre. I like to call it my fuel reserves, but um, I think I'm just, just trying to fool myself. And so I'm thinking, well, I can't lose the weight. I don't really necessarily have the right self-discipline. And now Ali works at the kitchen in Langport and comes home sometimes with Langport, uh, Langport bun and things like that. So there's no chance I'm going to lose weight from around here. So I'll tell you what I can do. Rather than trying to lose weight here, let's put on some bulk up here. So now every morning before work, I get my dumbbells out and I do a few exercises. And I think, if I can grow this bit, then my waist will naturally look smaller. And so I can distract attention away from that. <laughs> Because it's easier, very often, to be distracted 
and avoid having to face a certain situation. So sometimes it's easier maybe to spend an extra hour at work rather than going home to face a situation where maybe there are relationship issues. It's easier to go out and buy a pair of shoes as a bit of retail therapy than it is to face up to the fact that we're in great debt on the credit card. It's easy sometimes for the church and for us as Christians to busy ourselves being religious and doing all the right things and feeling like it's all, it's all on us, that our action has to be everything, that our service is paramount. And it's easy for us to be distracted by that rather than to facing up to the situation where we need to spend time alone with Jesus. And sometimes we are fearful of spending time alone with Jesus in the silence because we're not sure what he would say to us. Maybe there's something you would want to share with us that we wouldn't necessarily want to hear. So let's distract ourselves. Let's be busy. Let's not face up to that situation. It's easy to do. But notice that Jesus doesn't disapprove of Martha's acts here. He doesn't say that what she is doing in, it, in and of itself is wrong. The problem with them was that it affected her relationship, first with her sister and then with Jesus. So her zeal means that she's sulky towards Mary and then she's angry with Jesus. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus is her guest. And now she's affecting her relationship not just with her sister, but with Jesus as well, the one that she is there busying herself preparing the food for. Because for her, the, the act of service was doing the right thing. The law says, love God and your neighbor, but the law cannot produce love that it asks for. She lashes out the very one she's busied herself for in the same way that the law eventually calls us, causes us to lash out at God and to others as well. The law alone is insufficient. In Galatians 2, 21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could, not, could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You see, the law alone is insufficient. The law alone would cause us to focus on the work that we do and then to start getting angry with others who maybe don't share that same zeal and eventually it causes us to fracture our relationship with God. Jesus was already pleased with Martha. He wasn't about what she was doing. He enjoyed Mary's presence and that's what he wanted with Martha. He wanted her attention and her fellowship. Those things were above her food and her hospitality and her service. Those things in themselves weren't wrong, but they weren't the things that Jesus really wanted to share with Martha. Because Jesus came to serve and not to be served. He had something for Martha that he wanted to enjoy in her presence with her, just as Mary had acknowledged. He didn't come because it was the food, it was the hospitality, because of what he could get from it. He came because these were good friends. He wanted to be with them. 
Now, in an, an early sermon, I mentioned that Luke is often seen as um, a bit of a historiographer. He's very good, actually, at, at attention to detail in the history. But the structure of his gospel does tend to be more topical and chronological. So we have to look at how he positions these passages and these parables and that together. That the, the, we have to see where they have come from and then what they feed into. And I think it's quite interesting that this passage about Martha and Mary's home comes immediately after the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what do we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan? That love and service of our neighbour, of our enemy even, is absolutely crucial, is celebrated. But then we almost come down to an earth with a bump here because what it says is, but that's not everything. That alone is insufficient. The imperative is listening to the master. Because the most important thing isn't that we serve him through action, but we submit to him in communion. That we long to be in his presence. One of the amazing things about the Christian faith for me is that he doesn't ask for anything. He just calls us to stand before him. That we don't stand before him in the right way, in the right posture, apart from on our knees, with something that we can offer that is good enough. A sacrifice doesn't work. We don't have to come in a certain way. We don't have to bring anything. It doesn't, doesn't cost us anything because Jesus has paid it all. We just come and be in his presence. That's all he asks. And that's, at the end of the day, all we can give. Although there is actually one thing, I don't know if you've you've ever thought about this, and this is a little bit of a a detour. There is one thing that Jesus asks of us that he doesn't have himself. Have you ever thought about this? That the majority of things that he asks us to give him, he has first given us. Our love for him is because he first loved us. The very air that we breathe is the, the very air that he has given us. The faith that we have, faith has come through Christ, from the Lord. But there is one thing that he doesn't have that he asks from us. Sin. That's the one thing that we have that he doesn't. And that's the one thing that he wants to take from us so that we are burdened by it no more. So love cannot express itself in service alone. Service is important. I don't want us to go away thinking that we don't, that doesn't matter anymore that our priorities have been wrong. But fellowship and devotion come first, and then the service follows. We don't do things because it's going to get us into heaven. We do things as an expression of our love for Jesus, which is in response to his love for us. In uh, the, the, the story of Mary at Jesus' feet, in Matthew 26, it says that the disciples were indignant at the value of the perfume that she poured on Jesus' feet. I think it was worth about 300 denarii. And they say that money could have been given to the poor. And in in those verses, Jesus says that the poor will always be with us. Really interesting that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, come on, what are you doing? Just a little splash and that's great, but give the rest to the poor. Mary is seen as a a great example, as, as an illustration of service towards the Lord. Their priority is giving the money to the poor, and we know that it was Judas, and he had other priorities for the money sometimes. 
But she's not rebuked for doing it. That the priority again is on giving to God. And I think this inevitably leads to the question for us that says, well, what good are deeds in the church and by the church without tending to Jesus? What good is evangelism if there's no worship? Oops. I think it was John Stott who says that mission exists because worship doesn't. That's the purpose of mission. That's the purpose of gathering people together under the banner of the church. It's for worship. So what good is evangelism without worship? What good is conversion without discipleship? What good is the proclamation to each other without a prayer to heaven? See, these deeds alone are not enough. It's an impoverished life of faith that doesn't consider the bigger picture in that way. And there's a, there's a risk with Martha that she spends all this time preparing for an event and by the time she's finished, time has moved on and Jesus may well have moved on as well. You know, I can imagine her bringing out this great meal and, where's Jesus? Well, he got fed up with waiting and he's gone. I wanted to find an example and it's probably from, I don't know, a, slap, a bit of slapstick like Mr. Bean, but I'm not a Mr. Bean connoisseur, so I, I didn't know where to begin. But I could just imagine this, this picture of someone busying themselves with something so much, all the while, the event for which they are preparing is going on in the background, and they're totally oblivious of it. That it's a bit like, I don't know, missing a flight because you spent all your time trying to get your luggage down into something that's going to go into the hold. It's like still being on the, um, <clears throat> on the training field, getting ready for the big match, while the match is already happening. It's this, yeah, yeah, I'll be with you in a minute. Okay, yep, yeah, just doing this, yeah, and turning around. Oh, they've gone. But that's the very thing that I was working for, working toward. And we do that so easily that we miss the presence of Jesus in everyday situations that we need to identify the presence of Jesus and enjoy it and ask him well as a church are we so busy doing things so busy getting the right routine in place the right structures the right, the right people in the right positions the right activity the right use of the building the right order of service, the right equipment, but we forget the very thing that it's all for. Is Jesus in this? Is he already here? Maybe he's already gone. Interesting that Mary and Martha, I mentioned earlier that the sisters of Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus is dead and Jesus comes along and they have a right old go him. Where were you? You could have saved him. But you weren't here. Again, it was an issue of for Mary and Martha is an issue of Jesus' presence. The first time they, Jesus is there, and Mary almost doesn't quite acknowledge what's going on. And then at the death of Lazarus, Jesus isn't there, and they're rather uh, angry about it. Oh, Jesus can't do it. (laughs) Can't get it right, can he? 
And we see Mary through scripture at Jesus' feet three times. So he's there, she's there, sorry, for the, for the meal at Jesus' feet. And that's a bit of a controversial thing because usually it was purely the disciples, the men who would sit at the feet of the rabbi. So the fact that Mary was there is in itself quite controversial. We see in the account of Lazarus' death, it, it says that Mary fell to, fell to her knees at Jesus' feet. And then there's, of course, the anointing where Jesus has his feet anointed by Mary with the perfume. I think Mary gets it right because in each of those she submits to him and every time she offers something that is valuable as well. That she comes with the right heart to learn from him but to offer everything that she has. I think we also have a tendency maybe to fall into one or two, one or two pitfalls. I certainly do. The first is this idea that Jesus only ever acts with our involvement. If we don't do stuff, it's not going to happen. That it's like a, a bit like a, a, a dynamo-powered light. I know you don't really get those very much anymore, but I'm sure you, you all know what I'm talking about. That as long as the spindle is still whizzing round, as long as we keep whizzing that spindle round, then the light will keep shining bright. But as soon as we stop, it goes dark again. But that's not the light of Christ. That he doesn't need our action to do things, to be active in the world. He doesn't need our involvement because he's sovereign. And, and in scripture, we will often see that the, the will of God is exercised through the willingness of his people, but so very often he has to act first in order for people to realize what they ought to be doing. And that he acts sometimes, not just with the people, but in spite of them as well. So there's, I do tend to think like that sometimes, that, well, if I don't do it, then that's not going to happen. If I don't pray that prayer, it won't happen. If I don't say those words to that person, how on earth will it ever happen? If I don't do this thing, it's going to go undone. The opposite end of that, I think, is the flip side, is, is this view that Jesus always acts without our involvement, that he doesn't need us. And it's true he doesn't need us, but that's not the way he works. Well, if Jesus wants to heal me, I don't need to go along to a healing service. I don't need to ask for prayer. He'll do it. If Jesus wants that done, he'll do it. It doesn't need me to get involved. It doesn't require me to do anything. And I think both of those are equally dangerous because one denies the sovereignty of God and one denies the, the responsibility that we have to do things, to work, to act in faith. I think also there's sometimes the, the risk that I mentioned earlier that sometimes we, we maybe try to avoid this, this idea of spending time in the presence of Jesus, maybe because we're frightened of what he might say to us. Maybe we're frightened that he won't be there at all. But silence isn't the proof of absence. You know, when you're really close to someone whether that's your husband, your wife, your partner, your good friends. You can be in each other's company, but you don't necessarily have to be talking all the time in order to feel like you're sharing each other's company. Ali and I can sit on the sofa, reading, working on dissertations, whatever that might be. And it's still nice because I'm next to her. I'm still enjoying that time with her, even though we're not always in conversation. And that if there's a silence between us, it's not because it's a proof of any absence between us, that 
We enjoy to spend time in each other's presence. And actually, someone said this, that silence isn't the proof of absence. It's the only space that's big enough to accommodate the totality of Jesus. And so often, I don't know if you find this, but we fill our prayers with words. We have this sense that I need to keep going. That the more I say, the more likely it is to happen. I need to fill this void, this silence with words. And then give little time for Jesus to respond to us. Give a little time over to listening. Mother Teresa once said this, When I pray, I say nothing. I just listen. To which a cocky reporter asked, What does God say, Mother? With incredible depth and confidence, Mother responded, He says nothing. He just listens. So where this took place was in Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And Bethany was the site of lots of lots of these stories that we've been looking at today. And there's a sense that Bethany would have been filled with the perfume. The perfume of God's presence, of the feet of the one who brought good news. And what I take from that is that we need to always think and look and observe and ask, where is God in this place? Where is God in this situation because he's there where is God in this trial where is God in this life in this broken life that I see this person that has been rejected that has given over to all sorts of things that are are breaking them down and drugs and whatever that might be where is God in their lives because God can be there working Sometimes it's the beauty of hindsight that means we look back and if we're attentive we can see God's presence with us. And that's so important. That when we pray we're aligning ourselves to God's will, not God's will to ours. And let us pray that God show us where you're already working because there's no place that we can go where he isn't present. Psalm 139, where can I go beyond your presence? If I go to the, the, the far ends of the earth you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea you're there. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever lives we're observing, that's where God is. Asking what would God do in this situation, you know, probably a decade or so ago, there was, certainly among people my age, there were these bracelets at WWJD, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And that's quite a common question that people say, okay, in this situation, what would Jesus do? The trouble is that what would Jesus do implies that he's he's absent, that he's not there in it already. Rather, let's ask, what is Jesus already up to in this situation and how do I respond to that? Psalm 24, verse verse 7, which is one of my favourites, says this. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, To do what? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So I'd like us now to maybe just take some time to acknowledge and receive. Maybe to identify God in the silence, in the situations that we're going through. Maybe it feels like God is quite absent, quite distant.
maybe it's how to see it that God is at work through all the noise and, and all the bustle of certain circumstances. I think it would be good to spend a few minutes to just to ponder the presence of Jesus and to ask him, where are you, Lord? I know you're here. And that we do that with a grateful, willing and expectant heart.